big questions have essentially been from the realm of the cerebral. The nature of God, the doctrine of baptism, our understanding of United Methodist theology, basic beliefs about the Bible and its truth have all essentially been an intellectual exercise. But today, the big question is probably the one that cuts us most deeply, affects us most intimately. It's the one in its very special way is the most powerful and most difficult question of them all. It's the one that not only all of us have wondered at one point in our lives, it's also the question that has lingered the longest. It's the one that keeps us up at night. It's the one that we think as we're staring in the darkness of our rooms or confronting the cold, hard reality of those places in our souls that we would much rather ignore. And it's the one question of all the ones that we are tackling in this sermon series that just might make us question the reality of God to begin with. Walter Isaacson's best-selling book titled Steve Jobs about the well-known founder and CEO of Apple begins with a story of when Jobs was a teenager. When Jobs was a little boy, his parents had always wanted him to grow up in the Christian faith, and so they started attending a Lutheran church regularly. At one point, when Jobs was 13 years old, he went in to see the Lutheran pastor, and in his hand was a magazine. It was a copy of Life magazine from July 12, 1969. And on the cover of that magazine were two suffering, starving, innocent children who were victims of the brutal war between Nigeria and Biafra. Jobs walked into the pastor's office and began with a question. He said, Pastor, if I hold up my fingers, does God know how many fingers I'm going to hold up? pastor responded quickly, well, yes, of course. God knows everything. At that point, Jobs slid the magazine across the desk toward the pastor, revealing the cover of those two innocent children in the midst of that brutal war. And then Jobs asked, then does God know about this? Does God know what's going to happen to those children? The pastor stammered. He offered answers that pastors like me offer all the time. Well, yet, well, yes. Well, I mean, God knows everything. God knows. I mean, but we don't understand. He went on for several seconds. Jobs then announced to that pastor that he didn't want to have anything to do with any kind of religion that believed in a God like that. Walter Isaacson says in his book that from that moment on, Steve Jobs never stepped foot onto the campus of a church ever again. You and I can find ourselves in that story. We can find ourselves in that story very easily. 
For Jobs, it was the context of a war between Nigeria and Biafra. For you and me, there are countless numbers of stories, entry points, triggers, where we wonder the very same questions that plagued Steve Jobs. For you and me, it may not be a story of civil war, but it might mean the the death of a loved one, or it could be the inability to conceive a child, or it might be the brokenness of a marriage. As a human community, we can point out to a number of global newsworthy events that trigger for us those very same questions, stories that now have crept so deeply into our collective conscience, they only need to be conjured by single words. Katrina, Sandy Hook, Columbine, 9-11. There are many ways to ask the question. There are many voices who have asked it, but that question is always essentially the same. Why do innocent people suffer? What is God's relationship to suffering and evil? Where is the justice in such an unjust world? The relationship of God to justice is, in fact, the very basis of the word that theologians have created to address just this very problem. The classical theological term for this problem is theodicy, comes from two Greek root words, theos, meaning God, dike, meaning justice. It is that classic problem of trying to reconcile the justice of God on the one hand in a world that is filled with so much injustice. One of the classical ways to ask that question is in this very important three-part question. If God is all-loving and God is all-powerful, then why is there suffering and evil in the world? If God is all-loving and all-powerful, then why is there suffering and evil in the world? It is the classic formulation of a problem for which there has never been easy answers. Because if there is suffering and evil in the world, then why couldn't have God done, some, God done something about it if God is all-powerful? And if not, why didn't God want to if God is all-loving? This is a question that has plagued Christians and non-believers alike for centuries. And in fact, in my experience, for many skeptics and doubters and non-believers that I've known, this is the one question that has prevented them from taking that step into full faith in the reality of God in the world. And in fact, it is the one question that has made believers that I have known waver in their faith the most. And so frankly, if we solve this problem, if we come up with an answer to theodicy, then it becomes a whole lot easier for non-believers to believe but it's not easy. In fact, it's downright difficult. Professor of preaching Tom Long has even called this problem the impossible chess match. It's a chess match that is impossible to determine a winner in because both sides are so entrenched 
and there is no way to win this battle. On the one side of the chessboard is all that we have come to believe or at least want to believe about God, about God being all-loving, God only wanting the best for us, God wanting there to be no suffering and evil in the world, as well as a God who is all-powerful, a God who can control all events and make anything happen. That's the God that many of us want to believe in. But on the other side of the chessboard is the reality of the world in which suffering is imminent and evil is all around us and darkness seems to prevail and where innocent people suffer. And the two sides of this chess match are constantly at war in a game that never seems to be fully resolved. I like Tom Long's image of an impossible chess match, but in fact it's not original. You can find its traces In fact, all the way smack dab in our own Bible. Right there in the middle of the Old Testament, there's a chess match going on in the form of a group of books that is peculiarly grouped together, strategically grouped right in the middle of the Old Testament that we now call the wisdom literature. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations. We often refer to them as the wisdom literature, and they are grouped together and located precisely in this section of the Bible for a particular reason. Because what these wisdom literature books form is a kind of intermission, right in the midst of all of the historical narrative going on in the Bible right in the midst of exodus and exile, right in the middle of obedience and punishment and justice and injustice, faithfulness and unfaithfulness, triumph and tragedy, right here is a collection of books that pauses the action for a minute to offer a bit of commentary on all that we have read about and all that we will anticipate to come. It's kind of a halftime show in the Old Testament, and the halftime show is in the form of a chess match. And on one side of the chessboard, we have Psalms and Proverbs. We have words that we love to hear. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. My son, just keep my commandments and your days will be long and your years will prosper. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He will keep your paths straight. This This is a kind of God that we love, a kind of God that we believe in. This is a God who's faithful and all-loving and all-powerful. This is a God we like. But on the opposite side of the chessboard comes wisdom literature books like Job and Ecclesiastes and Lamentations. An unnerving, irrational story about a man who loses everything for no rational reason whatsoever and suffers injustice. In Ecclesiastes, a story of a teacher who surveys all of the complexities and mysteries of the world and comes to the conclusion that none of it matters. All of it is vanity. All of it is just a whisper of the wind, a breath of air. It is gone in an instant. Nothing makes sense and nothing matters. That's not the kind of God we like to believe in. But that may be the kind of God that we struggle to acknowledge 
is in the world. What do we do with this? What do we do with this impossible chess match that's in the wisdom literature? Well, perhaps, perhaps it's because these books are in the Old Testament that we, in fact, have been given permission by God to ask those toughest questions that make us tremble at the core. If there's any part of you this morning that feels even a shade guilty about the least bit of doubt in your life because of the suffering in the world, the good news is that the Bible has already asked all the questions that you're afraid to ask. So it's okay. It's okay to wonder where God is in the midst of suffering. It's okay to wonder how an all-loving and all-powerful God might be reconciled with the suffering and evil in the world. And it is in this collection of books that we gain permission to ask those questions to begin with. It's not the only place in the Bible, by the way, that the Bible asks those questions. You want to know another place? Right in the scripture reading that Kathy read for you moments ago. The parable that Jesus tells about the servants and the landowner is a perfect encapsulation of all that the wisdom literature is struggling with. The landowner and the servants wake up one morning to survey all of the land and they discover in this parable that, quote, evil has crept into the land, onto the field overnight, and has planted weeds right next to the wheat. So the servants go to the landowner and they say, Master, Master, shouldn't something be done about this evil? Shouldn't these weeds be eradicated? Master, all you have to do is say the word and all of these weeds will disappear. In other words, God, why don't you just do something and make all this evil go away? parable perfectly captures how much this question is ultimately about God. If God is all-loving and all-powerful, then why is there suffering and evil in the world? And the more we wrestle with that question, the more we realize that all three of those components do not neatly coincide with one another. It's like a Tetris match where the peace of God's all-lovingness and the peace of God's all-powerfulness cannot fit in a world where there is so much suffering and evil. So the only way that we can begin to get our heads around how to solve this problem of theodicy is somehow to reconceive, reinterpret, reshape our understanding of at least one of those three components. And in fact, every strategy... It's ever been formulated in the history of the Christian church to solve the problem of theodicy is an attempt to reduce, reframe, or reconceive God's being all-loving or all-powerful or the reality of suffering and evil. That's the choice we have to make. And frankly, I don't like the option of compromising God being all-loving. I can't find a way to do it and still call myself a United Methodist. 
because it is at the core of our Wesleyan heritage, right at the very essence of the Methodist conviction that God is a God who loves us so much that that love is shed abroad in our hearts. I cannot believe in a God who is not all-loving because if God does not love us, then friends, we have a bigger problem than we thought. So many people, if not most people, whether they realize it or not, skip to the option of reframing their understanding of suffering and evil. To somehow make suffering and evil not as bad as it first seems. These are good, well-intentioned Christian people, but sometimes the things they say in in an attempt to make it all fit together actually not only trivializes suffering and evil, it underestimates it. When people say in the midst of suffering and tragedy, well, God's got a purpose for this. We don't know what it is, but, but God's got a reason. Or maybe this is just God's way of teaching us a lesson. As hard as it may be, maybe it's like a parent who tells her child, you know, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Maybe that's what suffering is for some people, just a way to correct us or admonish us or to build character, just like our parents always told us that suffering did. But try telling that to a parent who just had to bury his loved one, his child. Tell that to the parents of a teenager who just lost their child in a hit-and-run accident or a family who just lost everything in a tornado. Sometimes suffering is just suffering, and there is no way to sugarcoat it. So I'm not sure that I can compromise either God's being all-loving or the reality of suffering and evil in the world. So perhaps, if there's wiggle room to be found, it might be found in looking at God as having power in a very different kind of way. You know, when we think about God's omnipotence, God being all-powerful, we think of a God who can make anything happen and in fact makes all things happen. A God who spins the earth on his finger. A God who causes all things to happen. A God who predetermines or even predestines all that's going to happen before it ever happens. That might be the kind of God that we think of when we think of God's omnipotence. But what if there's a different way to look at God's power? We might have to if we believe in human free will. After all, as United Methodists, we believe that humans have the power to choose. And if human beings have even just an eensy bit of power to choose for themselves, then it means that God doesn't have all the power anyway. Because if God did, then we would just be puppets, we would just be robots pre-programmed by a God who frankly never gave us free will to begin with. So maybe God has a different kind of power. 
Maybe God is powerful, not because God forces us to do certain things, but instead God is calling us to do certain things. In other words, maybe God is powerful not because God coerces things to happen, but because God calls us to cooperate with things in order to happen with a persuasiveness that is greater than any persuasive force in the entire world. Maybe God is powerful in the way that God chooses to identify with our suffering. Maybe God is powerful because even in the midst of the worst suffering and evil in the world, God is in fact not absent, but has chosen to be right here among us. Maybe that's the power, the power of God's presence to not only acknowledge our suffering and identify with our suffering, but in fact to call us to be part of the healing of people in the midst of that suffering. And in fact... Maybe that kind of power is best symbolized in a cross. Maybe that is what was revealed on that day when Jesus took the cross. That God chose a power that would not avoid suffering and evil, but that would conquer suffering and evil by identifying with us in the midst of our suffering. And through the cross, transforming it into something that we did not know was possible. New life, resurrection, new hope. And maybe in the midst of your suffering and in the midst of your turmoil, the presence of God, the power of God is the very reason you can have hope. And that you can in fact turn to those who are hurting around you and be part of the solution. Maybe God is not powerful because God causes everything to happen. But maybe God is powerful because God calls us to healing. Aesop once told a story of a conversation between the north wind and the sun. The north wind and the sun were having a debate about which of the two of them was more powerful. They were all espousing their strengths. They decided to have a contest to prove once and for all who had the greater power. The north wind looked down upon the earth and saw a man traveling on a road who was wearing a very heavy, warm winter coat. So the wind said to the sun, here's our contest. Let's see which of the two of us has enough power to take the coat off that man. The north wind said, I'll begin. So the wind blew, blew hard, blustering, trying to blow that coat off the man's back, trying to coerce that warm jacket off the man's body. The wind blew so hard that the birds clung to the trees and the, and the frost started to build on the ground, but all it succeeded in doing was not blowing the coat off the man, but forcing that man to hold on to that coat more tightly. The sun said, step aside, wind. The sun broke through the clouds, started to radiate heat 
bring warmth to the ground. All of a sudden, the frost disappeared. The birds unfurled their wings. It suddenly got hot, blisteringly hot in the land. And without touching the man, the sun made the weather so warm that the man decided with his own free will to take that coat off and lay it down on the ground and find for himself a shady spot. The wind said, how in the world did you do that, son? And the son said, well, it was easy. You see, it's, it's not about having all the power. It's about having the best kind of power, a persuasive power. That's the kind of power God has. The moment we start thinking of a God who makes everything happen is the same moment that we have freedom to blame God for all the suffering and evil in the world. So maybe we need a different way of looking at God's power. A God who chooses to identify with you right in the midst of your suffering, right in the midst of your turmoil. And ultimately, the short answer to the big question of suffering and evil in the world becomes all about the power of God. So, here is your short answer to the big question. Ultimately, the problem of suffering and evil is a question about God's power And it is on the cross that we discover what that power really is. A power to identify with us in the midst of our suffering. A power to persuade us, even until the very last second, to choose right rather than wrong. Love rather than hate. A power to call us to be a healing agent for others. A power to listen to us when we cry out in anguish, even in the midst of our doubts. A power to show us resurrection when all we can see is death. And just like the parable of the wheat and the weeds, at the end of the day, when the landowner says, when all hope is lost and all the weeds are as tall as wheat, we discover a new kind of power, a power to preserve life even in the midst of our hardship.